Okay, so this is how to prepare Biblically Sound Sermons Part 2. And I want to focus on what is called the act of interpretation. Using a model that is in my course on interpretation, viewing the act of interpretation as a set of interrelated relationships. And then the workshop is going to be partly to get you to practice um, being aware of these different relationships that are involved whenever we do interpretation. We start with ourselves today as the contemporary interpreter. And we have a biblical text in front of us, and we are going to set about interpreting that text. The first thing we need to become aware of is that we are wearing lenses. We are not neutral interpreters of a text. In true postmodernist style, we are situated. We have our particular angle. So to become presuppositionally self-conscious, we need to be aware of the fact, first of all, that we stand within a community of faith that has profoundly shaped us in the way we read any biblical text. If you are somebody who's grown up in a vineyard and you read a text of scripture as opposed to somebody who's grown up, say, in a Bible Belt cessationist church that doesn't believe the Holy Spirit uh, continued to be operational in the church after the apostles died out, there are certain texts of scripture you will read entirely differently. So, I am reading them shaped by the community I'm in. I'm also part of a history of the interpretation of that text. So when you read commentaries and theological works, what you're really doing is reading the ecumenical history of previous readings of that text. And you are part of that history of ecumenical interpretation. You are also part of a contemporary worldwide church that is influencing you in the way you are reading that text. So let's say there's a whole plethora of books at the moment on postmodernism. That is a big thing out there in the, in the ecumenical church today. Uh, you're influenced by that if you've read a few of those books and now you open a biblical text and it shapes the way you read it. So being self-conscious of these forces on us and most profoundly, what really shapes your reading of the text is your previous encounters with God. There is, in fact, a, a cyclical relationship between the text and your encounters with God. Every time you experience God, hopefully, you are getting inside the biblical text more and more. And you will be asking questions of it that are closer to its heartbeat because you've experienced more of God. And the deeper you grow in your experiences of God, the more profoundly you will resonate with the biblical writers who were having their experience of God. And, and uh, that influences you. Then you are also part of a secular society <coughs> that shapes your thinking. Probably more than you like to admit or that I like to admit. So there's, a, there's an institute in one of our universities on... Uh, contextual theology that, for instance, will take people in the township who are struggling you know, to have enough food to eat on a day-by-day, week-by-week basis and make them work with some of the parables of Jesus. And then take another kind of community, upper-middle-class community, and, 
interpret those same parables of Jesus and it's a very different reading because of the the social context out of which one reads that. And we've got to be aware of that because sometimes we are just so unaware of how, how biased our reading is before we even start. All of these are influencing you and as a result of that you come up with your interpretation. That is a set of interrelated relationships in the act of interpretation. That in turn raises the issue of how do we prevent the biases of all of these influences. All of these influences mean we are reading the text with a bias. Historically, the answer to such bias is the classical rules of interpretation, which I try to summarize the verse, the word in the, in the, in the sentence, the sentence in the paragraph, the paragraph in the narrative, the narrative, you know, all of that stuff. If you really do uh, um, work within those disciplines, you will never overcome your bias, and having a bias is not necessarily a bad thing. But you will balance your bias with proper rules of interpretation. And that's why they are important. Then you are reading a text. And that text itself is part of a set of interrelated relationships. So I've called the biblical writers the apostolic and prophetic witnesses. Because they themselves generally were not there when the events took place. They wrote a generation later, sometimes generations later. But they are bearing witness as writers to the events that took place in the drama of redemption. And the Old Testament ones are prophetic and the New Testament ones are apostolic. They are telling the story of biblical figures that experienced the activity of God. And they themselves are part of a faith community. So you'll find if you read literature on the Gospels, most people think that Matthew was written in Syrian Antioch, for instance. Or that John was written in Ephesus, in Asia Minor. And that Mark was written in Rome. Well, those are very different contexts and faith communities. Because the church in Rome was the church going into the Greco-Roman society, whereas the church in Syrian Antioch was far closer to the original Jewish-Palestinian environment. And therefore these are different faith communities out of which the biblical writers wrote their text. They were having an encounter with God. So let's say Luke is writing Luke Acts. Well, he was there through some of the story, I think, where he says, we did this and we did that. And so he definitely was in a world where the Holy Spirit was moving, he was a doctor who'd been converted, so he had an encounter with God. But his encounter with God was not the same as the original encounter with God between Jesus and his disciples. It was a later (coughs) generation of Christians experiencing God. And he was influenced, let's take Luke as as a case, because we're going to use him later on, by the historical context. Most people 
let's say evangelical readers would say that he was writing in some association with Paul's trial before Caesar in Rome and he was writing partly an apologetic to the Roman authorities that the gospel was not subversive to the Roman Empire and therefore Paul was not such a bad guy and therefore you shouldn't burn Paul at the stake um, and so the socio-political context that he was in profoundly shaped what he wrote and why he wrote it. And sometimes between the biblical writer and the original events are more than one community of faith. So, for instance, Luke wrote in one community of faith, but he tells us that he went around interviewing previous witnesses. Um, and many people think he incorporated the Gospel of Mark, or he incorporated incorporated another document that was made up of Luke and, and, and Matthew called Q. And those were written in other communities of, of faith between his community of faith and the original community of faith. And a good commentator will sensitize you to, to these factors. And then, as a result of all of that, they come up with the biblical text. Then we go to there are those different communities of faith that I'm showing you there. Then we go to the biblical figures. Moses is leading the people out of Egypt. Uh, Jeremiah is weeping. Paul is fighting with the Galatian legalists. These are the people in the coal face of the biblical drama. And of course sometimes the biblical figures and the biblical writers coincide as with Paul's letters for instance. These biblical figures are bearing witness to an event or are, are experiencing an event. And in their very encounter with that event, they are wearing spectacles already. Because they are part of a faith community that already has an expectation of God doing stuff. And so even before God did that stuff, they had interpreted what God would do when he did that stuff. So like God said to Abraham, you will leave your country and you will become the father of many nations and your descendants will become like the sand on the seashore. And then here we are in the book of Chronicles describing the, how the Israel is now multiplying as a great nation. Well, that experience has already been pre-interpreted by Abraham's story. And therefore, they are experiencing the kingdom in the days of David and Solomon through the lenses of the promises to Abraham. So they already are in a faith community in the very way they read the meaning of the events that are taking place. And they themselves are having encounters with God through the whole thing. And those encounters with God are in a world historical context. So Moses leading the people out of Egypt into the, into the Sinai Desert and putting up a tabernacle, you can do a whole study of the, of the parallels between the tabernacle structure he built and the temples of Egypt at the time, and how they were similar and yet how they differed because that was his context. Or you can look, get the laws of Moses and show that they have a, some sort of parallel with the code of Hammurabi and other law codes of the time and yet by their very difference with those law codes they show the angle of the biblical writers and so they are shaped by their world historical context. And out of that the biblical writers write their stories. So when you now come to be the interpreter, if we put these um, three 
context together, what happens is the original biblical figures are in a faith community and they are having an experience of God and that experience of God is taking place in a, in a, in a world context, a social, political context. They then have biblical witnesses write down the stories of their encounters with God. And those biblical witnesses are in a faith community. They are having an experience with God, and they are having that experience with God in a, in a certain worldly social context. You then pick all of that up, and you, the modern interpreter, are having an encounter with God in a faith community and in a world historical context. Now, what I don't want you to do is look at this and say, I will never interpret the Bible again, <laughs> because this is terrifying. The fact is, learning that this is all happening when you interpret a text eventually becomes unconscious. It's so much of a habit. I like to give the comparison of learning how to drive a car. Remember the first time you went solo with an instructor driving a car and you thought, how am I supposed to think about the clutch and the brakes and the accelerator and the indicators and the rear view mirror and the hooter and the person behind me and the guy sitting next to me all at the same time? It's like enough to give anybody a nervous breakdown. Today you do all of that and you listen to your lady telling you turn left and right and you have your music on and you're talking on your mobile phone and you're thinking about the scenery going past and you're not even conscious of the fact that it's difficult. Why? Because it's become a habit. So the more you deal with biblical texts and, and read helpful commentaries and support literature, who will always be drawing your attention to these different contexts. Eventually, it just becomes like a habit of mind. And obviously, this is not everything you tell your people every Sunday. You wouldn't even get to the text. But it is part of the multiple dynamic of interpreting a text. What do we want to have happen in this act of interpretation? We must look at my toys now. We want the original encounter with God mediated through the biblical writer's encounter with God, resonate with your encounter with God, and become the encounter with God of the people you speak to. But no such transference of these encounters with God happens in a spiritual bubble. They all happen within our community. Sorry, within our humanity. Within the real human context of the original people who encountered God and the social context of the people who wrote about it and the social context of we today who are just as human faced with all the same dilemmas as other people in previous generations have faced us with. So it's a kind of fully divine and fully human set of encounters that runs like a thread from the beginning through to the end. And that is what happens when you interpret a biblical text. Now, um, I just want to tell you that I did a, a teaching at the Wharfdale Leeds Vineyard, which I can give you, I think I'm going to get an email of these sessions to you. And um, I've made some comments about moving towards teaching in community. I, I have got a sort of more detail on that. And also the idea of the cycle between the Sunday event and all the other sectors and dynamics of the church. 
And then I also made some comments about uh, um, virtual church and using all the kinds of media that are available and uh, pastors becoming social networkers and um, resource people uh, through the website so that virtual church is not a distraction from real community, as, as, as we were discuss, discussing earlier, but becomes a service to this multi-layered experience of preaching. And if you want to get, get into that, um, you, you can get it through the email. Now what I want you to do is open your Bibles. And we're going to use a very well-known um, biblical passage to do a workshop. And we're going to do this workshop in two sections. So we'll, we'll do, you're going to break into groups, you're going to have some interaction, we'll have feedback. Then I'll do another little shot of teaching, and then we're going to do another little bit of interaction. And let me basically explain the two parts. The first interaction is, is learning context. And I'm hoping to stimulate you to see how important context is. What I've just done with you, those three diagrams, are three different contexts. Um, but prior to the social context, there is the context of the text in the passage. So the first exercise is the context of the text in the passage, what I did before lunch. Paragraph, in narrative, narrative, remember, in the plot. And then the second exercise we're going to do is the passage in the social context of the author versus the original context of Jesus and understanding the diagram I've just done today, versus our context. Okay? So, this is the parable of the father and son. So, read the parable to remind yourself of its contents. Then read the whole chapter, noting how the parable fits into the chapter. Then glance through the whole section from the beginning of chapter 13 to the end of chapter 14. And I'm going to give you details for that. And the whole point here is context. Now, to establish the context, I'm going to set up a kind of false dilemma. In this parable, there's the older brother and the prodigal son. The question is, who is the main focus of this parable? The lost son or the elder brother? Right. Now, we know it's both of them. Okay? But if you had to choose a winner as to who was Jesus really wanting to speak to his audience about? Was it the lost son or the older brother? So, in order to answer that question, you must fit the parable into the chapter with particular reference to chapter 15, verses 1 to 3, which describes to you his audience at the time. He told this parable to a particular audience. Then, how does this chapter fit into the wider context with special reference, I've given you a string of texts there that shows you that through that whole section of chapters, Jesus was in a particular kind of encounter with his audience. So this is not the first time when he tells this parable that he has encountered with that audience. And that may give you a different spin on your answer to the question, namely, who is the main focus of the parable? And I'm hoping you're going to have a nice argument with each other. And some of you will be convinced it's the prodigal son. And some of you will be convinced it's the older brother. And maybe you will tease out why 
Some of you won the argument and others lost the argument. Okay. Now, Bill Gates, you know. So, um, what I just wanted to draw your attention to, if there's a consensus of your feedback in the previous session, was that probably we didn't either vote for the son or the, the youngest, you know, the prodigal son or the, or the older brother. But while the chapter itself would make us predominate towards the lost son and the lost coin and uh, the lost sheep, when we zoomed into a bigger narrative of where Jesus was and we saw his continual confrontations with the Pharisees, at least the older brother got an equal vote to being the point of the parable to the lost son. And we realized there was an angle that Jesus had towards the Pharisees that was part of his social context. Then when we turn to Luke, and you look at Luke's theological themes, there are a number of points we need to make here. When we read our Bibles today, we are the audience of an original evangelist called the writer of the gospel, who is the person who's actually preaching to us today when we read these narratives. We do not have direct access to Jesus. We only have access to Jesus through the gospel writers. And they are theologians in their own right. They are evangelizing us faithfully with what came from Jesus, but we're actually getting it through their lenses. Therefore, to say what was the priority list and condition of Luke is as important a question as what was going on in the life of Jesus. And with Luke, this whole thing about previously excluded groups being included is paramount in, in his thinking. Uh, and you know, the Pharisees excluded the sinners because they, their worldview was that we are God's covenant partners to keep the covenant so that the Messiah must come. We must obey the covenant. And those who are doing their best to the, obey the covenant are the true Israelites. And those who are disobeying it are blowing our chances of the Messiah coming. And they really are an excluded group. So we, we think, oh, how terrible to, of you Pharisees that you would think that the sinners should be excluded. They wouldn't have that problem at all. They would say, the sinners are stopping the plan of God taking place. And uh, that's all part of the original context of Jesus. Luke then, I think, accurately picks up the heart of Jesus, that he has come to include all those that were previously excluded. And so Luke systematically, for instance, he is the one who shows Jesus te dealing with women differently. And the early church dealing with women differently consistently shows how women are included. He consistently shows how Gentiles are included. So, in fact, Luke's main point of this parable is the very contrast between the two brothers. Before Jesus came, the older brother was in, the younger brother was out. Now that Jesus has come, the younger brother is in, and the older brother better look out, because he's, he's now the one stopping the, the purposes of God. But it's a different time and place. Uh, and part of, of Luke's... Um, message to the Roman authorities of the day is that this is a religion that is socially constructive, not destructive. Um, so it's a, different, it's a different context. Now, all the, all the point I, I wanted to really make about coming to now your sermon today 
is that when you preach about this message, if you have done a little bit of hermeneutical training about the Zitz in Laban, is that you would want to at least refer to it and say, Jesus told the parable, this, what was, this is what was going on in the life of Jesus. Here are the dynamics. Luke tells us the story. Here's what was going on in Luke's life. Here are the dynamics. Now, here we are today, and maybe we're planting a new church and we are committed to a church that's not going to be pharisaical, and why that's the big thing today. But that links back to what Luke was dealing with, Luke and Paul and the Pharisees of his day, and that links back to what Jesus was dealing with and the two different groups in, in his day. And of course, at the end, hopefully, you will end on the profoundest note, which is that this is really about what kind of God is the living God like. So really, the point of the pa- passage is not either the older son or the, or the prodigal son, but throughout, it would, Christopher Wright would say, God is a God of mission. And, and when you know the heart of God, you will automatically know how to treat the older brother and of course, ultimately, for the person coming into the church, it's important for him to know about, yes, he could, he could live into the role of the prodigal son. But what he really needs to know is what God is like. That he's the welcoming God. Which almost lands us with a point of systematic theology rather than contextual theology. And at that point we say, if we're in Jeremy's church, would you like to make a commitment today? And... Uh, we will have people responding. So, the point of the passage was to learn context in the historical context and context of paragraph in passage, in plot, in narrative. And I hope from now on you will do it like driving a car. (laughs) Automatically just switched on to understand all of these things as you become brilliant exegetes of the biblical text. And that's the end of the day.